this is a dangerous environment to be in. There's a lot of risk built up that people are not paying attention to that can be ignited at any point. I don't know if this is the top, but I do know what's really risky. And when you're adding leverage to this, watch out. But if we were to go into a Mad Max world, I would still rather own hard, critical for humanity types of um, sectors. Why don't you start off by giving us your overall macro view and kind of the things that you have been thinking about over the last two weeks? And then let's go over some specific topics. So the macro view is hasn't changed significantly. I think we're just in an accelerated position now based on what we've been talking about for some years. And if I was going to broadly define that, it is a stagflationary environment. Uh, we are in a war economy, whether people understand that or realize it or not is irrelevant. Um, and in both of those environments, well, in, in a war environment, you you typically have constriction of supply. And right. so while people have been very, very focused on um, GDP growth or on um, sort of macro um, numbers coming out, I think that that's already priced into the market. A lot of that's priced into the market. What isn't, hasn't been priced into the market, in my opinion, sufficiently well are issues surrounding supply and not just right. supply of, of aggregate supply, but also you know the breakdown of supply chains. So we can have, for example, tons of pick your commodity, copper, oil, uranium. It doesn't really matter what that particular um, commodity is. But if your ability to get that to market is hindered or compromised in some shape or form, prices skyrocket. And so that is what you, and that is typically what you get in a wartime environment. We're already watching this rolling out. We're seeing this stuff in the sewers, right? We're looking at potential conflict in the South China Sea. These are all trade routes. Um, and so where trade routes get constricted, and it's not just trade routes, but where trade routes get constricted, naturally your supply um, and your cost of moving goods accelerates. That environment, it doesn't matter what the Fed does, right? The mm. Fed can raise rates, drop rates, they can print money. It like it doesn't change the fact that good A doesn't get to, to you know place B in time or at the same price. And so those are issues which I think are becoming they're they're becoming more prevalent, and I don't see that going away. In fact, I see that accelerating. It's a broad thing, and then of course. If we're going to look at the monetary side of things, the only tool that the central banks have to address issues that are in many instances of their own making and in some instances synthetically of their own making, in other words, things like wars come about as a consequence of monetary policy, they don't have any other tools other than screwing around with interest rates um, and increasing or decreasing money supply or credit growth and things of that nature. You know, I would argue they don't really have power over that either. They're losing, yeah. Video. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's the only tool that they have, and so that's the tool that they're going to play with. Um, so that's, you know, as a broad context, that's our framework that we've been working with now for some years. And like I said, I don't think much has significantly changed, excepting that we are further down that path and we are accelerating very, very quickly, in my opinion, towards some, I don't want to use cataclysmic, but... But there's event horizons which loom, which are extraordinarily dangerous. Um, we've seen them in the Magnificent Seven. We're seeing it in the bond market. 
And so in many respects, I think for listeners, it's often a situation of knowing where not to be. Um, that's that's kind of, you know, what's was it Buffett was it, it was the first rule of, of making money, don't lose money. And the second rule, don't forget number one. Yeah, right. It's, yeah, so, so if you're addressing and you're looking at where the most dangerous or the greatest dangers exist in the market, I think that's a very, very good step towards understanding where you might want to be positioned. How do you reconcile the probability of consumer price inflation in the United States or disinflation or deflation with your view of the supply side of commodities, which we know is an input for pretty much every good or service, and the money supply growth, let me be more specific, the increase or decrease of bank lending and bank credit? We have largely in the Western world and in the US in particular, a credit-based system. Um, And most or much of the spend, and forgetting about the way that money comes into existence via the credit system, just in terms of your average man on the street, there is a significant portion of the of the cash that they're spending is actually credit. And so, as you get through, or as you move through a tightening cycle, then it's it makes a lot of sense that that the spending um, is impacted negatively as a consequence of of less credit available, or the cost of that credit is higher, right? Um, and so if you just looked at it purely from that perspective, you'd say, well, that's deflationary, right? So what do you do in a deflationary environment? Well, you go into cash and you go into bonds, typically, right? That's been a historical precedent for, for what you would do in that sort of environment. But at the same time, that's discounting geopolitical conflict. It's discounting supply chain disruption and all the other things that you mentioned. So this is a complex situation. It's not right. that simple as sort of looking at one thing in isolation. I'm trying to make. Yeah. Um, now, what I think what the easiest way I think to describe it is to think of it in terms of um, the inelasticity, as you mentioned, of certain goods, which broadly we could define as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. There are certain things that you have to have, and you will um, forego other expenses in order to have those things. It's electricity, it's food, it's shelter. Those are your basic necessities that you will look after and forego other things. You'll get rid of your Netflix subscription. Right. You might not worry about all the apps on your phone and you won't maybe upgrade your iPhone this year or whatever it is. So the, we, we have, if you're look, kind of looking at the broad economy, it's very difficult for me to conceive of an, of an environment where I would want to be long consumer good um, companies. Mm. And that's despite the valuations that we're seeing in them, which are not particularly cheap. On the other hand, when we look at the, shall we say, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs type of component, um, and we've got a couple of slides. <clears throat> so growth, basically, we could say Magnificent Seven. That's your growth companies, okay? Your value stocks are typically those which are income-producing Cash, they have a lot of free cash flow, typically don't have a lot of debt. <clears throat> Those companies have been discarded and left for dead for well over a decade now because they just haven't, you know, the, the companies are doing well, but the share prices haven't haven't done as well. And we can go, I don't want to go into the details of why that is. That's a whole different discussion. Nevertheless, we can see that that divergence between your value and your growth is at an all-time high, and we've had, you could call it a triple top. Whether this breaks down this time or not, we don't know. But on probability, it's it's a decent 
probability that we've either reached the top or we are close to it. Okay, and when I say the top, it means that the value or the the the, um, the price of growth assets far exceeds those of value assets. You know, and typically the trade that one would make in this situation is to go the other way. You would sell your magnificent seven, and you would go and you would buy your value stock. So that that is just a broad sort of picture for one to have a look at. And if you go to the next slide, Chris, before you, we do, let me. Sorry. Push back a little bit here. How long have you been managing money? Mm, back since 2016. Since well, I, well, how long have you been in markets? I think that's a better way to say it. You've oh. been in markets since <laughs> mid 90s, right? So yeah, back to the dot coms was when I cut my teeth in um, investment banking in London. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that that was my point. So in that time frame around the dot com stuff, did you see a lot of? anecdotal evidence that we were at a top. And and here's what I'm referring to specifically. I just saw the other day that Jim Chanos closed his fund. One of the, the most famous short sellers of our time shut everything down. And he was, I believe when he shut things down, he was at like 300 million in, in assets under management, which sounds like a lot, but in the hedge fund world, that is peanuts. Absolute. When you juxtapose that to Kathy Wood, who has, I mean, you'd know better than I would, what, 20, 30 billion or maybe 10 billion, something like this. Or if you go into things like CalPERS, right, where they're managing pension money and the pension money is all invested in this. this. The Magnificent yeah. Seven. And I was listening to a podcast today with David Einhorn, someone who I, I think it's indisputable, is extremely intelligent, a very thoughtful, thorough investor. And he talks about his journey of value investing. And he started right around the same time, you know, 95, 96. Did very, very well. I think his uh, best year was 97, where he had a 57% return for his fund. And then everyone's just throwing money at him. And he says he did well up until I believe it was like 2014. And he said that the, the, just no one bought the value. And everyone not only bought what was overpriced, but they continued to buy and buy and buy as a result of passive investing. In fact, he, he, he has had a complete shift in his view of the market, and he credits that to a conversation that he had with our good friend Mike Green in 2019. So you see, that's, I guess I'm asking a couple of different questions there. How do you think passive will impact this chart? How, how do you factor that yeah, so, into your equation so, and then do you um, look at that anecdotal evidence of like jim chanos shutting down his short fund that's the time that you might want to go short okay so i've got i've got a treat for you guys um <laughs> go, to, to answer the question um let's go to the what's it chart number three okay to give you because so, you talked about the dot coms right <clears throat> so in the dot com era we, we, we all know now what, what that was. We had extreme valuations within the dot-com stocks. At the same time, and this is probably what Einhorn is talking about, if you had gone and you had purchased old economy stocks, you know, your your trains, your, your smokestack stocks that nobody wanted to know about. Yeah. So S&P was down some 45 50%. Um, if you were in the internet stocks themselves, a lot of them just went away. And about 90% of them did actually go away, completely went away. But it was a fairly horrendous bear market. You could have not only escaped that bear market, but you would have 
um, produced around about over a sort of three, four, four year time frame, about a 50% return simply by going and buying boring, shitty old smokestack stocks, value company. And, and very much akin to what we're looking at today, they were printing money. The, 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 the free cash flow from those value stocks far exceeded those in the dot coms. Today, we're, we're looking at exactly the same thing. There's a couple of sectors that, that I would point out, which are um, present a lot of asymmetry within that. But if we just have a looking at this at this chart, yeah, where you've got the magnificent seven. And by the way, any time you have the markets and the, and the, the mainstream media coming out and giving names like the magnificent seven, mm. it's like the nifty fifty. Right, right. It's it's right, you, they're right. literally telling you that this is a dangerous Bubble. environment to be in. Okay. Now, I don't know if it stops tomorrow, George. I don't know if it stops the day after. What I do know is what's expensive and what's cheap. And I do know that if you buy what's cheap and you stay away from what's expensive, that works. It's, it's mm. This is not complex. And so here we're looking at the Magnificent Seven and the market cap of these exceed. You, you could buy all of Japan, France, China, which is the largest one of the largest, arguably the largest economy in the world. You could buy all of these for less than the valuations. You're talking about the entire stock market. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so do, like, do, is this an extreme? Sure, it's an extreme. Of course, it's an extreme. Now, if we think about the revenues, right? Because revenues in a, in a normal world, revenues and profitability should drive value. Okay. Right. If I've got a business and it's generating 2x revenue of your business, I should have a valuation that's roughly 2x yours, maybe a little bit more depending on my growth rates, maybe a little bit less if you've got a really fast growth rate. So growth rates can come into it. But what we have today is just so out of kilter that it's, it's amazing. And back to what Einhorn was talking about with respect to passive capital, one of the things that we've noticed and where, where I think investors have a huge edge is in timeframes. And the reason that I say that is that much of the capital over the last 15, 20 years has moved from active fund managers into the passive world. Why? Why would you pay some dude two and 20 when you can toss it into a into an index and pay 50 basis points or 75 bips and just let it run? Now, and the index outperforms, ironically. The issue enough. that you have is that passive capital has grown so large that it cannot actually deploy into small market segments, mm. not very easily, because there isn't the liquidity. If you're running multi, multi-billion dollar um, ETFs or, or mutual funds or any any of these structured um, investment products, it becomes more difficult for you to have any significant allocation towards it. You might have a half a percent or something, but you, it's, it becomes really difficult to do it. And so as a consequence, the capital doesn't go there. That, in my book, has opened up significant opportunity. And the more capital that has moved towards the passive industry, the more it's just gone into things like NVIDIA. NVIDIA's market cap now is um, over $100 billion higher than the entire S&P 500 energy sector combined. Wow. Okay. So think about this. You can buy the entire energy sector for $100 billion less than buying NVIDIA. Now, if you have a look at 
the next slide. Yeah. This is where I think this Microsoft versus energy. So here's cash layer. Here's your free that's, cash layer. Yeah, that's going to be my next question. You know, again, back to that scenario. I've got a company that's making two and a half times the revenue that yours is or vice versa. Which should you buy? Like, again, this is not complex. But what we're seeing is a massive anomaly. And I would suggest that that's an, that's an asymmetry that you would want to take advantage of to some degree, at least. We can debate how what sort of position sizing you want to have. But to, to simply to acknowledge that one of these looks risky and one of them looks less risky, I think is, is you know, it's pretty easy to make this call. And then you could, and then you can ask yourself, well, what's going to make it go higher, right? Because at the end of the day, the only thing that makes a market go higher is more participants. And so who else is going to come in and buy the Magnificent Seven? There's only there's two ways that you can do it. You can have more participants, you can have retail, you can have whoever. Someone that's not currently invested can come in. And the other one is leverage. And guess what we've just seen the last week or two? If we go to the next slide. Okay. This was published on the And this is largest US pension fund bought up Intel and NVIDIA. But if you go into the article and you'll see it's that's um that's where I've snapshotted one from the FT. They're yep. doing it with leverage. Mm. So so these are the only two ways that you can push these equities higher. I ask you have to ask yourself the question, who's gonna come in after them to push it ever higher? If you were buying today, the only way you're gonna make money is by the stock going up or dividends. And guess what? These things don't pay you any dividends. So like I don't know if this is the top, but I do know what's really risky. And when you're adding leverage to this, watch out. This is, in fact, you know, <laughs> going through that dot-com era, we never saw anything this crazy. And that was pretty crazy. We had never seen anything this completely bonkers crazy. And if you go to the next slide, it'll show you just how extreme this situation is relative to the previous bubbles that we've had. I would look at this, George, and say, this is a significant opportunity. Rarely in one's investor lifetime do you have these sorts of extreme situations, very rarely. And the yeah, challenge is what is the catalyst, Chris? Because if you look at this chart, we have been in the danger zone, if you will, over the Nifty 50 since 2016. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options, Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow Rebel Capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. So what, now, what do you think makes this time in which we live right now different than 2016, 17, 18? Why is there a catalyst now, do you think? Well, there's a 
there's a, the first the first thing point I'd come back to is over time we know this from reading history and from looking at um, stock markets going back hundreds of years. The way you make money is to buy low and sell high. That's mm. just you know, this is undisputed. Now we can argue that this can go higher, right? That's possible. I would look, the, the true test of asymmetry is something where you have relatively low ro- low risk and, li- and relatively high reward. Right. So I'm, not, so I'm not making a call here. I don't think we have to make a call and say that this is a bubble that's going to burst. We don't have to make that call. What we have to do is say, okay, I don't want to be there, right? First step, get out of the way of something that looks risky. Fine. Don't own these things. Now, where, what, where do you place your capital? If we look at the other side of that particular coin and we look at energy, as I mentioned before, and we saw the, the cash flows, the free cash flow with respect to the energy sector, what has that sector done since 2016, 2017, 2018? Well, guess what? It's done well. We've not lost money. So you, we've managed to get through this period, which is where it's gone from risky to extremely risky. And we haven't lost money. The only thing we've lost is we've lost out on the gains if we were invested into the Magnificent Seven. That's the only thing. And that's, that is the greed. That is the, that's the chain of shutting down his fund, throwing in the towel. That is the Druckenmiller. If you remember Druckenmiller back in... Um, I think 2012, didn't he? Shut down his fund then? Um, no, I, I remember he, he got out of the market... And then he watched it go up higher and higher for like two months. And then he went, stuff it. And he, and he went back in. And that year he lost $4 billion. Mm-hmm. It, it's, and that's drug. Right. <laughs> right. He's not a, a retail schmuck. Um, he knows what he's doing. But it can get anybody caught out. And what he needed to do was, was what he knew. He knew it was risky. He knew it was dangerous. But let me, I want to put this chart into as simple terms as I possibly can. And I'm looking at the Microsoft versus energy sector. So let's just think about this for a moment here. If I asked the viewer, would you rather have $135 billion a year or would you rather have $67 billion a year? That's a pretty easy question. But then it's one of those, oh, wait, there's more. <laughs> Do you Would you rather have a hundred and thirty-five billion or hundred and sixty-seven billion? But the hundred and thirty-five billion is half the price. That's what we're dealing with right now. That's it. It's as simple as that. Yeah. It is literally as simple as that. And again, it doesn't mean that the three point one trillion doesn't go to three point two, four, five, some other number higher. And it doesn't mean that um, the the energy sector suddenly goes from 67 to 70 or 80. Maybe it stays at 67. Maybe it even goes to 65. But again, if you come back and you look at since like 2016, we haven't we haven't lost. This is it has continued to be profitable. What that tells me is that most of the hands that are holding that are strong hands. That's what it tells me. Yeah, they're like Bitcoin holders. Exactly, and and it's because they're value, you know they're, they're weirdos like me who sit there and go, I'm not selling this stuff. It's printing money. Why would I? Right. 
and it's not it's not rocketing higher while I'm sitting watching the Magnificent Seven go up, and in, every day Nvidia prints another five points. I'm like, okay, so so that is in my book the trade to make, largely broadly. Chris, let me before we go on, let me kind of give my take on that question I asked you as to why we could be at a moment in time that's different than 2018, uh, 2016, 17, 18, and why there may be a catalyst. You said earlier that in your experience through these cycles, at a certain point, people just run out of money. There's no more money. And what they do is they go from allocating capital, and then once they run out of capital, then they start putting on leverage, which is what you pointed out with this U.S. pension fund uh, taking on $1.5 trillion of additional risk through leverage because they just don't have any more in the coffers. So they've got to go out and and borrow more. Uh, so if I'm hearing you right, the move to where we are right now in the mag seven or any move higher would likely be dependent on leverage, which in my mind is dependent on the banking system. And then what I do is I look at Silicon Valley bank. I look at first Republic. I look at signature. I look at credit Suisse. I look at um, the problems that they're having with UBS. I look at New York Community Bank. I look at the regionals tanking. I look at the problems with their balance sheets due to commercial real estate, among many other things. And then I look at the credit growth that we've had, which has been no growth. It's been pretty much flat because the banks see a lot of risk out there, understandably. And so so, uh, they look at the yield curve, they look at all these things. And so I'm sitting there looking at a banking system that wants to lend a lot less, meaning they want to provide a lot less leverage. Therefore, that could be the catalyst uh, that could mean that the taps are run dry. And therefore, the next move down is not just taking the stairs down, but taking the elevator down. There are many catalysts. That's one of them. And then if we look on the sovereign balance sheet side of things, this, the absolutely staggering amount of new debt that has been added to this thing. So what largely what we've been talking about up until this point has been fairly US-centric, shall we say. So we're looking at the, the markets in the US. But remember, nothing happens in a vacuum. And so the the construct of that market is still largely, to some degree, dependent on other nations holding US debt, which then, of, co- of course, affects the interest rates. And then that has a flow on effect into the banking system. And there's an, in, an interplay between, between how those all function. But the point is that we have not only the um, problems in the credit system within the US that you've alluded to, but we've got massive, massive problems in the sovereign debt markets. And going and, and while we're at that, we're going into a time of geopolitical conflict. So if you're a if you're a nation at war, you do not want to be owning or holding the debt of another nation that you're at war with. That's just logical. That's what we're facing. So, you know, you talk about catalysts. I don't know what a, what those catalysts could be, but we don't need to even make that judgment call. We know that they're out there. There are these events and they, con- they look increasingly probable um, daily. But again, we don't have to even make that judgment call and say, oh, well, this is going to happen when and I need to time it. No. All you need to know is what's dangerous and stay the hell away from it and right. then try and position yourself for something which on a relative basis provides you with protection and potential upside. So I think 
Go, go ahead. Finish that thought. I think this is a perfect transition into the next topic that I wanted to discuss. So um, I was just going to say what what you need to look at is basic good old supply and demand and, and Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Look at what is absolutely critical in a fake world. We've got fake TV, fake news, fake money. You know, nothing matters more than real goods real stuff, the power that you turn on, the food that you eat, the gasoline you put in your car. These are real hard issues, which, you know, they will always come to the fore. You look through historical periods, that's what happens. I don't see why this would be any different. Right. And then, Chris, can you tell us about your new VR goggles? (laughs) (laughs) I'm joking. (laughs) That's a joke, guys. That's a joke here. All right. So, I don't, I don't need them. I just turn on CNN. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've seen those pictures of the guys like walking around, like having dinner with one another with the crazy goggles on. It's just, is that not ridiculous? Yeah. But anyway, what I wanted to get to though, is something you talked about in your most recent research paper that I had never thought about. I'd never, ever, ever thought about the relationship between the border crisis and potentially the U.S. Treasury market. So the reason why these treasuries are such pristine collateral is not because these people are out there saying, oh my gosh, this interest rate is going to exceed the rate of inflation in the United States over the next 10 years. That's not part of their their math. It's simply a result of safety and liquidity. Safety, not meaning that they're going to be paid back in dollars that are going to appreciate. They're fine if they depreciate. Safety, meaning that they're going to get 100 cents on the dollar. So if they hold this one-month or three-month treasury to maturity, they're going to get whatever they paid for it. Might not be the purchasing power, but they're going to get the same nominal amount. And then there's going to be liquidity, 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 liquidity. That's what gives these things massive amounts of value. But if you include a component or if you introduce a component of risk to where they might not get paid back, like there might be a literal default, then that is a total, total game changer. And this border crisis increases that probability. Not, I'm not saying it goes up to 100% or anything, but it was at zero and it increases it, let's just say to 5%. And that's something that we need to be cognizant of because of the states quite literally breaking apart well, change, and deciding whether they want to margin or the United States, a federal government. So do you want to explain that hypothesis? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, the, the first thing to understand is that any, in any given market where you have um, extremes, change happens at the margin. It doesn't take much to change it. Okay. And, and again, you can go back through historical um, asset bubbles and so on and so forth. It is that last marginal buyer who makes that that change. So keep that in mind. And certainly based on what we've just been talking about, we can, I think it's it's fair to say that we have extremes in these markets. We have extremes in some of these equity markets and we have extremes in the in the sovereign bond markets. So we'll put that, we'll shelve that for the minute. Now, what is it that backs US Treasuries? Well, central banks and and you could argue it's the taxpayer. Okay, fine. But really, the United States, despite what most people think, um, is not a democracy. It's a republic. Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but we're increasingly moving into a time where it's more probable than it was last month or last year or the year before 
that we have, should we say, arguments at the fiscal level between states and the um, and Washington, right? We've already had Texas defying the Supreme Court, saying but no. Go over that, Chris, because I was not aware of that. I, that whole thing where they basically gave Biden the finger and they started putting up all this razor wire. And then the Biden administration sent the feds down to pull it, uh, pull down the uh, razor wire. And then Texas put it right back. And then that went to court. And then they lost. And then what they're now um, saying is that, hey, this is self-protection. And it's um, well, protected the in Article XYZ. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not a, a um, constitutional buff per se, but as my understanding is that under the Constitution, the states have the right to protect themselves, um, and especially if the federal government decides not to help, basically. So largely, that's what they've now invoked. Texas has said, screw it. We are legal in our in, in invoking um, this prov- provision to protect ourselves. So it's not illegal for us to ignore the Supreme Court. Um, so that's the state that we're in right now, which is fine. Everyone's focusing on this. What I would suggest is have a look at this. If you're a foreign buyer of U.S. Treasuries or any buyer of U.S. Treasuries, what's it backed by? It's backed by taxpayers. We're the taxpayers from all these states. What happens if the states get into a bit of a, a dust-up, you know, go into the backyard and get behind the bike sheds and have a punch-up? Well, what happens is at some point, maybe one or some of these states, and remember, 25 other states have backed Texas and said, no, we're with you. 25 but, but other a states. A lot of them have sent troops. I, I have no troops. idea. Exactly. So what we're seeing is a clear, a clear ideological divergence. Now, if you were to imagine investing in a company, imagine you and I invest in a company, George, and there's five boards of directors and they're all governing this running directors of you know, running this company. And we get to sit in at one of the board meetings and we see that there's a massive, massive, um, you know, argument going on about the direction of the company. And three of the guys are going one way and two are going the other way. Like, are we, you know, at some point we might sit there and go, yeah, mate, I think we sell. Maybe we just get out right. and, and we'll, we'll wait for the dust to settle and figure out what the hell they're going to do. And then maybe we'll come back in or we'll just, you know what I mean? This is not any different. So you're seeing this, this, and this is <laughs> only differences. It's not a small company. It's the U.S. Treasury market. So again, you come back to what you mentioned before. You know, what's the catalyst? I don't know what the catalyst is, but we're looking at international war. We're looking at civil war potentially. And and look, here's something else. When people talk about civil war, they're like thinking about left and right. Those issues exist, but here's something else to think about. U.S. has been bombing other countries for decades now or supporting various um, campaigns, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, Ukraine, you name it. Now, if you are in opposition to that and you realize that the border is wide open, don't you think you might send a few battalions across? You don't think the Chinese have sent a few battalions across? Come on. This is real politic. So now, and and if or when you need to activate them, why wouldn't you? So there's there's a lot of risk built up that people are not paying attention to that can be ignited at any point. Right. So again, you go, how do you manage your capital in this environment? What is safety? You, so treasuries, as you mentioned, are safety and liquidity. But really, it's not safety. The only safety it provides is in 
the liquidity. The liquidity provides us the safety, really. But the safety doesn't really exist. And most people know that. Like like you see, nobody's holding a 30-year treasury expecting to pick it up in 30 years' time. No. They're doing it because it's liquid and they know that they can get out in six months or two days or whatever it is. So so the, the safety measure is, has already been evaporated. The Fed's done its deal on that, right? They've destroyed the value of the dollar sufficiently that people don't make that judgment call. They're making the judgment call because the treasury market is the most deep, liquid capital markets in the world. And it provides you that ability in a time of chaos and uncertainty to say, okay, I can sit this out in treasuries. And that's what you do. That's what people will do. All I'm saying is that it might not be as risk-free as one thinks. It's Again, change happens at the margin. So, um, But the scary part there, Chris, is, is there's nothing else. No. There's, there's literally no, nothing, nothing else. else. Like if you but, understand the monetary system, it's not like they can say, oh, all this treasury collateral, we can't use it anymore. So now let's use gold. No, or now let's use it's Bitcoin. Like, it, it, it didn't work that way. It's gold treasuries are nothing. Yeah. It's treasuries are nothing. And if it's, if it is nothing, that's Mad Max stuff. It's Mad Max stuff. But then I think there's also a certain level of asymmetry here, right? Again, you come back and you go, where is the insufficient supply? You can see they can increase the supply of treasuries ad infinitum, right? It's like it's like sand in the desert. There's tons of it. Just keep going. Um, but what are you going to use that for? And again, again, I come back like we look at, at at our firm. We'll look at things both from this sort of macro perspective, and then part of it is just looking at just straight up value, straight up value, and looking at supply demand dynamics and going, okay, what does that look like? Forgetting about anything else. And it's so clear when you look at that, you know, there are there are sectors of the market which are so, so cheap on a relative basis, on an absolute basis, and they're necessary for humankind. You know, we've talked about coal many times before. And, mm, and yeah. you know, we've had a lot of subscribers and clients going, oh, you know, we're up like, I don't know, five times or something in coal. Do I get out? And if you look at the, the charts in this over a long time frame, we haven't even moved off the bottom. And... Mm. And there's, there's, and they're still trading for three times, you know, with 12, 15% dividend yields. So again, you look at it and you go, okay, would I want to own treasuries or NVIDIA or any of this other garbage? Or would I want to own a coal company when the growth in coal is is increasing? Believe it or not, the whole usage is increasing. And of course, and we can get all into this. I mean, we've got now the Biden administration who went and told the Europeans, no, we're worried about climate change, so we're not gonna we're gonna shut down some of the LNG terminals. And of course, they blew up the pipeline. Putin blew up his own pipeline, remember? Because you know, it made a lot of sense. And so what is it that the Europeans are gonna do? They're gonna import coal because there's nothing else. So you have an you have an increasing demand and they're not gonna be going and mining for it. Not yet. It'll come. But, you know, so when you look at the, the asymmetry that exists in some of these markets, it becomes quite an easy decision as to how to build one's portfolio. Mm. You know, you just stack them with these kinds of bets, which are, again, the probability of you losing money in them is relatively low. Right? So you've got Stanmore or Whitetape and any of these companies trading for, for very low valuations. The, the free cash flow is sufficient that they could buy back all of their stock within, when I lost it, Stan was like two and a half years, they could buy back their entire free float. Mm. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so I'm like, well, I'd kind of rather own that than treasuries. 
And I understand that you can't, there is no replacement for treasuries at the moment. But if we were to go into a Mad Max world, I would still rather own hard, critical for humanity types of um, sectors. And, and, and they're the cheapest they've ever been. So I'm like, okay, find me another reason not to own them. Chris, you know, it's funny. I referenced that interview I listened to with Einhorn. And he said that now over the last couple of years, that's been his strategy that's worked actually extremely well is he has found, he has just basically shunned the S&P 500 and he's looking more, I, I, I gathered like the Russell, the Russell, something like, like yeah. a lot of these smaller stocks that have a lot less liquidity, but they're trading at like three, four times earnings where they could buy back literally a hundred percent of their shares and the over like a two or three year span. So you're like, yep. look, either they're going to buy back all their shares and the stock's going to go up or the stock's going to go up. <laughs> so, and, and this comes back into this comes back into what we were talking about before with respect to passive capital flows, right? Yeah. So your passive capital, if you're running a large institutional, so look, here's the business model. You you do something like we do, two and twenty roughly, right? And you run a few hundred million dollars. You can go and you can buy all these things. If you are a big institution and you got four or five billion under management, you can't buy the stuff that we're buying. You right. can't. There's no point. And that's what Einhorn's finding, I suspect. Yep. You know, so the more capital moves into the passive, where they're just charging you, I don't know, 100 bips or 75 bips, the more it moves into the, the more it has to keep buying the big stuff because that's the only place where it can go. And but the bigger the edge, and the bigger edge we have as retail investors who see the opportunity. It's leaving all these beautiful companies out there like Einhorn's finding where you're looking at them and you're going, you know, I sit here and I scratch my head sometimes. I'm like, what am I missing? Why? Like, and they're perfectly good companies, but, you know, sometimes they're maybe 600 market cap, $600 million market cap or something. They're far too small for these guys to buy. And so what you need to accept, of course, with it is that you can have and probably will have a certain level level of volatility with it, right? But volatility is not risk. If you've got a company that can buy back its entire free float in a couple of years, right? Has no debt, it's paying out 12, 15% dividend yields, and you have a, a an investor who maybe owns 15% of it and he gets redeemed and he's got to sell. Well, guess what? The stock's going to go down. It's going to happen. But does that equal risk? No. It's, not, it's just volatility. Volatility is not always risk. So you've got to accept that you might get that and then you position size accordingly, understand what you're buying and just go, okay. And you either add when that happens or you just go, oh, well, so be it. And you go back to sort of you know running your, your business. So the ability, like I said at the start, to have a longer time frame than other participants in the market is I think one of the biggest edges that people have, certainly retail investors have. Absolutely. At this present time. Absolutely. Chris, I wanted to get into the David Webb stuff, the great taking, and your views on that and how you're setting up your portfolio uh, accordingly. We're not going to have time. So what I'd like to do is save that for a webinar in Rebel Capitals Pro. Uh, that's the investing website that we've got with our good friend, Lynn Alden. Uh, I was going to do something this Friday. So what do you think about that game plan? People can go to georgegammon.com forward slash pro right now. They can do a quick trial offer, and then we can see them Friday in the forum 
and then we can discuss more in more detail what we just yeah. went over, but then we can also discuss that very important topic of the great taking. It'll be my pleasure. <laughs> I don't know about pleasure. We're, we're, talking, we're, we're talking about things that are, um, yeah, somewhat distasteful, shall we say. But look, um, you know, it's like you I can't bury your head in the sand, Chris. You, you've you got two options. You bury your head in the sand and buy the S&P 500 or the MAG 7 and just get run over or potentially run over. Or you open up your eyes. You say, yes, this is going to be a little stressful what Chris is going to talk about. But I need to learn this stuff so I'm not a victim. So I can look at 2024 and beyond and I can not only survive, but I can actually financially thrive. That, that's what this is all about right now. So on that bombshell, uh, go to georgegammon.com forward slash pro. And uh, Chris and I will see you this Friday. Probably do something right around 1 p.m. Eastern time. We'll see you then.